0: This is a Data Science Channel program from the Holly Gealu Data Science Institute. Visit us at TV slash data science to learn more about how data is shaping our future. All right. So. Um I want to thank you both for being here. We have um, Tricia Bertram-Galant, Gallant, is the director of the Academic Integrity Office here at UCSD. We have Shannon Ellis, a teaching professor in Cognitive Science, and Leo Porter, a professor in Computer Science. Unfortunately, Leo couldn't be here today. He's got a bit of a cough, but uh, hopefully uh, you're able to participate. Uh, so I want to start with a question for, for Tricia. So uh, I think when one first considers ChatGPT's implications for education, um, the first thing that comes to mind is students using the tool to, to do assignments, uh, perhaps outside of the, uh, the bounds of the syllabus. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, you're actually holding a symposium this week on uh, partly AI's uh, impact on education and academic integrity. So I, I guess, uh, could you give us a sense of in what sense there's a problem? Is the problem already here? And how is it different fundamentally from previous enablers of misconduct?
1: Yeah, it's here. It's inside the room. Um, yeah, tomorrow actually uh, morning our at eleven a.m. is our student panel, and they're going to be talking about how uh, what they think of uh, ChatGPT, well, generative AI and learning and academic integrity. So, I encourage you if you haven't yet checked it out to ch- check it out on our website academicintegrity.ucsd.edu, and you could still sign up for that one. Um, so, yes and no. It doesn't change things, right? 2008, when, I, when my first book was published, I, asked in that, I said in that book, we need to stop asking, how do we stop students from cheating, and start asking, how do we ensure students are learning? That's picked up speed a little bit, but it's more relevant now than ever before, right? If we ask the question, how do we stop students from cheating, we're always in this cat and mouse game, this technological arms race, uh, the detector conversation about should we be using detectors to detect when students cheat. Now, I think detectors have a real role to play, and we're thinking about disinformation campaigns and, and, and could help us save ourselves. Um, but, but is that the right approach in, in academics? And really, so the, the causes of cheating are the same, Right? It's kind of a perfect storm of low self-efficacy, extrinsic motivation, which means I'm focused on getting the grade or the degree, and a performance orientation of the class happening inside an a, a environment, whether it's a peer culture, institutional culture, or, or class culture. So that those things haven't changed. What I think Gen AI does is changes the opportunity, benefit, and cost. So the cost of engaging in cheating goes down because you're less likely to get detected, Um, and the benefit goes up because it's faster, cheaper, and easier than, say, asking somebody else to write your papers for you. It's much easier to ask ChatGPT to write your papers for you. So it's the same. um, The temptations are still there, the the reasons why students might turn to it. I think the the question we want to ask ourselves, you know, going forward in terms of thinking about the answer is pedagogy assessment and culture, and it, it always has been. But I think what we need to ask now in terms of a very specific to Gen AI is kind of what we had to go through with the calculator and, and other tools is where is the boundary between cognitive offloading and cheating? We all, we all cognitively offload all the time. And so we have changed the boundaries of when it's cheating, you know, when we think cognitive offloading is cheating or not, and that depends on the assignment. It depends on the assessment and the learning objectives for the course. So that's an interesting question I think every instructor has to ask themselves, is when is the use cognitive offloading and okay, because it doesn't undermine learning or assessment, and when is it cheating?
0: Uh, fantastic. Thanks. I, I, I want to flip it to uh, Leo and Shannon now. So, um, have you tested ChatGPT on your own assignments? I know I have. Uh, how, how well
2: does it work? Um, yeah, so uh, I have tested uh, ChatGPT. Um, I've been using Copilot, which is the LLM uh, for programmers from GitHub. Uh, and let me just quickly say how well it does for introductory programming. And they'll talk about my later courses and advanced content. Um, for introductory programming assignments and exams, it performs quite well. Uh, For exams, there's actually a study uh, in my field of community education research uh, that looked at how well these tools perform on summative exam questions and found that Codex, which is a precursor to Copilot, uh, outperformed 80% of introductory programming students. Uh, For programming assignments, uh, the ones that students take home and do, um, it does exceptionally well. Uh, when students are asked to solve really well defined problems. And just like, just like you pointed out earlier, uh, unfortunately, that's how we design our programming assignments in our classes at UCSD and at other institutions dealing with large enrollments. Because there are hundreds of students in our classes, faculty tend to use tools to automatically grade student submissions. But in order to automatically grade student submissions, faculty have to carefully specify the desired behavior of the code that carefully specified code behavior is exactly when tools like Copilot do really well. Um, and so I think for introductory programming, it means we're going to have to change how we assess uh, students. We just fundamentally is going to change. Uh, for upper division content, as of right now, who knows with chat GPT four or five, um, but as of right now, it doesn't do very well on my um, advanced course content. Like where I ask, where I ask it to optimize code to perform better on specific hardware using the hardware specifications, uh, their chat, GPT, does quite poorly. In fact, it gave me code that, that barely worked at all. Um, and so uh, there are certainly limitations and its abilities, um, but right now it's essentially as good as a novice programmer.
1: Ditto.
0: <laughs> cool. That gives us a lot of time to answer the next questions. Actually, I, I want to pick up on that because one of the things I've noticed is um in how you assess, um, you might think like, okay, let's, let's assess deeper. Let's ask for explanations. And actually, that, I found that to be the wrong way to go because ChatGPT, as Stuart showed, is very good at BSing. And when you're, when you're giving partial credit, uh, that earns a lot of partial credit. <laughs> so I actually have tended to ask a lot more, very direct very well-defined questions. And I actually started doing this in the pandemic uh, when we were teaching remotely. And on my exams, ChatGPT gets like 40%, 50% on like a battery of 30 questions that the answer is a number or something like this. Mm-hmm. It's actually impressively good, but it is a bit of a uh, an antidote, I guess. Um, I, I, I think that leads us into our next question, though. So Shannon, maybe you can tell us, um, have you found ways, because I think a lot of people are interested Uh, found ways maybe of making assignments which are robust to chat GPT. How how has it affected your assignment building?
3: Okay, so I said ditto not because I don't like to talk. I really like to talk. That's why I have this job. Um, It was mainly because I wanted to get to talk to this topic, and I agreed with everything Leo said. Um, So hopefully I won't... Blabber on too long here, um, and I kind of want to use the same breakdown that Leo did on this like lower div and upper div, and this gets back to what Tricia was saying about the course objectives and modeling things to make sure you're attaining them, and the objectives in an intro course are inherently different than those in an upper division course. And so to answer the actual question about how I've modified assignments or what how I approach thinking about that, I'm going to first talk about upper division courses I taught one last quarter, and on the first day I had this really great student, and he was great all quarter, and raised his hand, he's like, you know, I'm talking about um, academic integrity. He raised his hand, he's like, can we use ChatGPT? And I was like, yes, you can, next question. And then it was like, wait, 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 wait. And you know, they're getting this different from each professor, and they should, and they should ask about it. And I said, well, I'm going to be running my stuff through ChatGPT. You can, too. Um, and I'm going to be designing it in this course so that you can't get everything right, and you need to think critically when you run it through there, which things it did get right and which it didn't. And when you do that, you're getting to the course objectives of this course. Because it was upper div. there were It was using data, analyzing data. And if they... Right, asked ChatGPT. I mean, I did it. I did it for all of mine. It was going to get some things right and not others. And they had to think about what was and was not right. And so in my mind, in that course, do, go wild. Do whatever you want to want and that one. And so that same student throughout the quarter, um, they have independent. Like he came to me and he was like, so I've pulled back on how when I use ChatGPT. I don't want to use it like immediately because I'm not learning as much. Right? And he's, he's self regulating Not every student is doing this. Um, but he came, to so then you know, after the first midterm, he, he raises his hand, he's like, so you said you used ChatGPT, but I found that when I used ChatGPT on your exam, it got, got me the right answer on that one you said it didn't. I was like, okay, tell me your process. And he said, well, I put the question and it didn't give me the answer, so then I tried part of it, I edited the code, and then I asked it a different question, following up on that, and it gave me the answer. I was like, excellent. Right? Like, I'm fine that it helped you get to that answer. I was like, if you put in just the question, it did not get you to the thing, and you needed to figure out what you needed to do. So I felt in that class that just by checking and thinking about what ChatGPT is good with and what it wasn't, we would get to the course objectives. Now, the other side of that is intro programming. I'm teaching intro programming this quarter for the first time since these large large, uh, LLMs have become pervasive as popular. I ran a handful of previous exams through, and it... Ace them, yeah. Um, So there, my goals are that students learn the fundamental building blocks of programming and are able to implement them in the future. If I were just to set them free and use ChatGPT through the entire course, you could get through the course without learning and you could do very, very well. So there, I changed my assessments. I changed my assessments when we were remote for Zoom, or went to Zoom, made them take home, That went really well, students liked them, said they learned even more than, you know, so that was great, they won't work now. And so now I did go back to an in-person conceptual exam. I'm not gonna have students writing code on a piece of paper, they're never gonna be doing that in their life but they're gonna answer conceptual questions and then there'll be a take-home portion where they implement that technically, right? And so they have to do the concepts in class. They have to understand these building blocks. That's the time that they get to when I tell them, show off what they've learned, right? Like, that's how I want them to think about my midterms. But I have had to uh, change my approach to make sure that the assessments were matching the objectives. That was my long answer to make up for my ditto.
2: <laughs> uh, Leo? I think that was a fantastic answer. Um, I may do the same thing uh, Shannon just did offer to know, but let me just uh, add maybe one piece to it, which is, um, I think a new direction for these assessments is uh, having computer-aided test centers, uh, or, sorry, sorry, computer-based test centers, where students can come and they can take a test in a, a proctored environment. Um, and uh, Tricia really has led the charge at UCSD to have these kind of test centers, Thank you, Trisha. you've already made all of our instructors' lives easier, thank you. Uh, but I think if we could expand that operation, what you could do is then have uh, these controlled environments where the instructor can specify when the student has access to these tools and when they don't, and they can move through the test in a really nice way. And so I'm, I'm really optimistic about that trend.
3: Okay, now I'm going to follow up on that real quick. So. Pre-pandemic, we did in-person midterms in my intro programming course that has like 350 students. And then we would have grading parties that would take hours and hours and hours because I will not give a multiple choice uh, exam in an intro programming course because that doesn't accomplish the course objectives. Multiple choice exams are great for certain things. Um, And a handful of TAs have been like, why don't we just have them do this on a computer? And I was like, because we just like can't. Like, we can't right now. And that is even more important now. So, yeah, I'm grateful for the testing center now and where it's going. So I also ditto Leo there.
0: So I want to follow up a little bit about uh, the teaching of programming. Um, and I guess uh, you know one question is, do we still need to teach intro programming, given that GPT can do it uh, quite well? Um, but I guess... Uh, one of the interesting parallels I've seen, or interesting ideas, um, is that you know maybe maybe 20 or 30 years ago we learned very low-level programming languages, and and nowadays we teach higher-level programming languages like Python. And in some sense, you know, Python is is automating all of that that messy work for us. And is this the new programming skill that we need to be teaching? Is talk, talking to an LLM and it just handles the low-level details for us?
2: <laughs> yeah, a Leo, absolutely. I can't really agree with you more um, on that sentiment. Um, I computer science as a field, right? We have just every uh, few decades we've advanced how we communicate with computers. Um, I teach assembly programming for computer science majors because I think it's essential skill that they need to know. But most people don't program in assembly anymore, right? Or programming in Python or in easier languages. And so I feel like this is just uh, one more step to reducing the barrier to entry into the field of programming. But I would want to separate a bit uh students who are coming to be professional software engineers and what they need to learn versus all of the other people who need to learn how to use to write software. Um, and that's such a huge group, right? That's um uh scientists, social scientists, artists, musicians, data scientists, engineers, all these different groups, right, who need to learn programming. Um, I'm not sure they need to spend a ton of time in a course focused on syntax, which is what a lot of engineering programming courses are about. Um, instead, I think they should be focused on a new content and uh, working with LLMs. Um, and so this past uh, sub, uh, quarter, I was on sabbatical, um, and I was working with Dan Zingaro, who's also within the field of pediatric research. And the two of us really tackled how should we redesign an interactive programming class for students who are, just need to be able to write software, and maybe they're not going to go be professional software engineers long? And uh, as we did that, um, we also read literature, and we, we saw great articles, uh, like uh, the one that Brett Becker put out last month, talking about how LLMs can teach students how to program by letting them see lots of different correct answers and that compare and contrast the different right answers. Uh, but I'm uh, of the mind, and, and so is Dan, that things are going to change more fundamentally than that. I think the skills that students need to write software change when they use an LLM. Uh, and the old way of teaching introductory programming, uh, focus on syntax is just not important anymore with Copilot. Uh, on the other hand, some skills that are really important uh, to software engineers, uh, like problem decomposition, testing, code reading um, ha- that have always been on the kind of back burner um, because of syntax and those intro courses now become front and center. And I know I'm talking a little while, just, just one more piece here, and that's um, in trying to design a curriculum uh, for students to learn how to write software using LM. Uh, we realized that the shift is so significant that um, us kind of just sketching out a curriculum and writing a paper about it was not going to be sufficient to make change. Uh, And so this is a a bit of blatant self-promotion, but uh, we decided to actually write a book um, on how to learn how to write write programs using LLMs. Um, And that's actually going to be coming out next month uh, for Manning Publishing. And our goal really is to increase the uh, population uh, that can write software um, by lowering the barrier to to doing so.
0: That's that's very cool. So I, I want to shift the, the focus to, I think the second thing that, that comes to mind when we talk about uh, LLMs in education is this notion of de-skilling that David brought up earlier today, which is that, you know, your mental faculties atrophy if you don't use them. And so um, if we have LLMs uh, doing the intro programming, solving some of the easier problems, um, I kind of liken it to a, a surgeon maybe who has been given a, a robot who can do the suturing, yeah. you know, and so. Uh, For the advanced, for the experienced surgeon, it's no big deal. It simplifies their life. But for the new surgeon, they've lost something. They've lost the practice. Mm -hmm. So um, how concerned are you about de-skilling, and what do you think the solution is? Should we withhold LLMs until people have reached a certain level of their education?
3: I think some people could make that argument, and I don't think they'd be wrong if they were to withhold right, and say, the, David's argument earlier, right, that we don't let them auto-land and take off, right, even though we could, and that, like, we just, when something could go wrong, you really want people to have the skill to make sure, and so you could take that same approach here. I I would take the other one, is like, let's make sure our students know how to use the tools that they have at their aid, correctly think critically from them, so Yes, ChatGPT could take away all critical thinking, um, but you could also utilize it in the other way. So like Jingwei mentioned earlier today, using it to write exam questions. Lots of people have been doing that, give you, you know, giving you other thoughts. Um, anybody in my intro programming course, on their midterm in two weeks, I haven't written it yet, but I know that I'm going to go to ChatGPT, ask it the same question a handful of times, get a handful of different answers because that's possible, and then have them think critically about the answers that come from it. Uh, this is not an original idea. Other people have tweeted about this. Lots of people are doing this. Um, and so, in my mind, withholding it limits the reality that students are going to be living in. But teaching students how to use it and to think critically on top of it, um, and then get to do, th- and, and ideally, as we go further, do cooler things earlier, right? If we can teach the core skills faster and still get a true understanding where we kind of get rid of the need to teach syntax as. Hard as we do right now, as much as we do right now, Um, I think we can augment critical thinking, but we have to do it thoughtfully. We can't just like expect it's going to happen, and I'm, I'm going to read that book. Uh,
0: So I wanted to, uh, I guess you know, there's there's been a lot of concern or a lot of questions about uh, the implications of LLMs for different careers, and I think teaching is is one of the big ones. (laughs) So uh, you know, the absolute gold standard in education is one-on-one tutoring. Um, And large language models, some say, will enable that in the next few years. We'll have uh, AI teachers and tutors. So um, I guess the first couple parts to this question, you know, are you optimistic or skeptical uh, about that possibility? Um, And then what becomes of the teacher, what becomes of the university in a world where LLMs are fantastic one-on-one teachers?
1: Well, you might as well just retire now. You're all out of a job. Um, no. So, but I know some faculty that are saying that, like, I'm just going to retire now and that's okay. Um, so I'm extremely excited about this. So, and it's already here. Khan Academy is already doing it. Um, Seneca college in Ontario, Canada is already working on, they, I'm sure other ones are too, but I saw their announcement that they're working on a individualized tutor system, which is Fantastic. Because with the massification of higher education, with our 300, 400, people classes, our students aren't getting a lot of individualized instruction. And we need to somehow um, enable that while still providing the f- you know, f- um, fundamental and, and fabulous educational environment that we have here. So this is going to be a really great way for large uh, research-driven institutions like ours to really become teaching institutions as well in the, in the true sense of a, a school where you have 25 or 30 people in your classroom. And what that will free faculty up to do, not only the tutoring thing, but the automation of writing my exam questions, um, grading my exams, delivering my exams in a computer-based um, testing center or learning center, we might call it. It will free faculty up even if you have 300 students in your class to actually get to know your students, to actually do active learning flipped classrooms where your students are coming into the classroom to engage with you, engage with each other in human to human relationships, because that's the thing that Jenny, I can't yet do. I don't know how far in the future that's going to change where we have these models of uh, companions. But, you know, for now, it, it can't do that. And so I actually think that'll free faculty up from the drudgery of academic, some of the, t- the work behind teaching and and research and free you up to actually be coaches, mentors, facilitators, um, assessors in a different way, oral assessments, I think are going, they're already back in our engineering faculty have been trying this out for a year now. Um, That kind of interaction, and isn't that a good thing? Because we need our students to be able to communicate orally about what they know and what they can do, not just in writing. We'll be able to do mastery-based assessments where, as Leo said, they'll come to a a testing center and they'll test once and be like, I didn't do so good. I'm going to try again. They'll get another individual utilized assessment. So I'm super excited about that. If you can't tell, uh, it was a few years ago when I said, you know why students cheat is we don't have 24 seven learning support for them. So they go to the platforms that are open 24 seven. Most of them go to those with the intent to learn for help. It might end up in cheating, but that's not usually the intent at the beginning. So this is absolutely a game changer to have 24 seven legitimate <laughs> tutoring support.
0: Uh, Shannon, did you?
1: Sure.
3: Uh, so I might be slightly less optimistic than Trisha there. So I hope that Trisha's right um, on that. I guess I, I'm, you know, when you teach really large classes, you're, like, always thinking about the things that are going to fall through the cracks or, like, where things are going to go wrong. And as this rolls out, there's going to be the growing pains as we figure out that. So I love the, like, I model, and I think kind of we're in this transition period Particularly in programming courses where the model is going to completely change and it's going to get better, um, but we're going to have some hiccups along the way. Um, so I love that like vision, and I think that like fits into the overall like what is the role of the university? and the, univer- like the role is to give students a dedicated time to learn more, and this will just be a tool to support that. So I think it supports that mission. I think the university's role is also to expose students to things they didn't know existed. Um, and it gives them the time to explore those things, and I think that's my role as an educator. And I tell students in a lot of my classes, like, by the end of this class, you'll either know you like this more, or you like this less, and either one is great. And like, that is part of education. If you get an A-plus in my class and hated it, like, go do something else. And the university is a place that allows that, so I think my role as an educator will change. I would love to have more personalized education time, one-on-one with students, and so I like aspire to that vision. I just think we're going to have some bumps before we get there all the way. Which Trisha didn't say we weren't. Yeah. Oh,
1: it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just easy now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Uh, Leo, did do you want to add?
2: Oh, I could just just add two quick things. W- one reason I'm slightly skeptical about intelligent training systems finally coming out um, is that LMs lie. Right, And you can't have your tutor lie to you. Um, I think that's going to be a really big problem. And until they get more accurate, I might be very wary of having students uh, get their tutoring help from an LLM right now. Um, Another question, maybe I I could turn this back to Tricia really quick, is uh, we find with our students right now in our department classes, they don't spend a lot of time, it seems, uh, trying to solve it on their own. Uh, Once they run into their first row bump, they immediately go to our tutoring support uh, for help and then get unstuck and then they just repeat that cycle. Uh, And I worry a bit about having a tutor immediately available the moment you get stuck. And I'm kind of curious how you might want to design a system, Patricia, that that would avoid that issue.
1: Yeah, well, couldn't we if so, I think this is why Seneca College is designing their own tutor rather than waiting for a third party to come out. Right. So and I don't know that I'm just guessing. But so we could train the tutors to say, how long have you been thinking about this so far? What, what all have you tried so far, right? That's what a tutor does. Just so we could train the AI tutors to be the same as a human tutor. So your human tutor doesn't automatically start solving, you know, showing the student how to solve. It's like, well, what have you done so far? What do you know? What do you don't know? What are your questions? You know what? You have only been thinking about this for 10 minutes. You need to go back and think about this for another hour and then come talk to me. So I think it's possible to, to program in those, those structures, those uh, parameters around when the tutor can help and what the next step in helping is. Which is why I think we can't leave it up to uh, OpenAI and all of these other companies in doing it. It has to be paired with people who know about teaching, which is why I think the Khan Academy one's probably going to be pretty good and pretty powerful, but we'll see.
0: Very interesting, very insightful. And I think with that, that wraps up the panel and wraps up today's event. And I want to thank all of the panelists, all the speakers for today for a a fantastic event. Um, Thank all of you for attending, and go enjoy the weather. Mm -hmm. Take care.